I will have to ask your pardon and ask you to bear with me this morning. Maybe this is better. I woke up speaking an octave lower for some reason, I assume allergies or something, so I'll be drinking some water and thank you for your patience in that regard. It's so good to be with you today. It's so good to be um, preaching with you again. Uh, I love uh, the opportunity to speak and to preach uh, God's Word. Well, we're going to begin next week a series on the book of Job, the sovereignty of God over chaos and evil. If you look in your worship guides, you've got a little card there that I'll mention later that's for your own kind of reference, but also for you to hand out. You go out to lunch today, uh, go out to eat somewhere, you go to the grocery store, um, pass that along to someone, let them know that that's beginning next week. Let them know about our church. They may find that uh, invitation inviting and uh, come. But we've been doing our family devotion this summer. We finished in the book of Joshua, and I find out reading the book of Joshua with my family uh, that there are some questions I had about the book of Joshua and its meaning and its place in Scripture. As I began to study it, it began to get bigger and bigger to me and more and more of joy and has turned into my desire to share with you uh, the book of Joshua uh, and what it means for us. I think it's a wonderful, actually helpful uh, place in Scripture to jump for one week before we get into the book of Job. Uh, We're going to see some things that are very helpful connections for us there. But one of the simplest ideas which is so fundamental to being a Christian and yet which is so often uh, feels elusive or bewildering to us is the simple instruction to trust God. Trust God. Have you ever been in a conversation where you encouraged someone else or someone gave you the counsel to trust God? Maybe you've gone to someone or you are asking for help for a job or for something going on with your spouse or your children's behavior or finances in your home or a sickness, what to do about your future, and you received the counsel. And what could go wrong with this counsel? Oh, you just need to trust God with that. Well, what do you do? What does it mean to trust God? I think often when we hear those words, it can sound to us like, do nothing, trust God. Don't do anything. Just, just, just be and, and, and trust. So this morning, as we look through the book of Joshua, I want to discuss what it means to trust God. What what does it actually mean to trust? It does not mean quit trying to control the situation, just let things happen and go sit on your couch and and just just trust. No, God calls us to do something when we trust. So we're going to see this morning how God's promises in the book of Joshua relate to our obedience to God, our trusting God. What does God's promises have to do with what we do? In order to trust God, what does that look like? We'll see two things this morning, two main points, and you'll find as you're following along this morning, the first point is going to take much longer than the second point. So as we get to the halfway point through the first point, and you think this is going to be a long sermon, just know the second point is considerably shorter. First point, we can trust God Because he keeps his promises. That's the first point. We can trust God because he keeps his promises. Second point. Trusting God means keeping God's commands. Trusting God means keeping 
God's commands. My goal this morning is to simply look into the book of Joshua and see how it shows us where God's promises are in our lives and where God's commands are in our lives and how we relate the two. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would be with us this morning as we come to do what is a spiritual endeavor to preach your word and that it would be received, Father, not only as the word of man, but Father, what we read from your word and what is communicated here, what is proclaimed, it would be recognized as your word. And Father, we would know what it means not only in word, but with conviction and with power and understanding by your spirit. Father, you know that in so many ways we may in our hearts, each one of us here today, may need to be convicted into repentance. Help us, help us discern the Spirit's conviction as we hear the word preached that we might repent. And Father, in all the ways that we ought to continue on in faith and obedience, help us be encouraged by your word to continue doing that. We love you in Jesus' name, amen. Number one, we can trust God because he keeps his promises. We're going to see this in the book of Joshua, and it's going to take us, we're going to plop right into chapter 21 in Joshua, and that's on page 196, which Marilyn read for us. What's the book of Joshua about? When you think about the book of Joshua, what comes to mind? If you're familiar with the Bible or you've been at church, you might know that song, Joshua fought the battle of Jericho. Well, that's pretty much the entire epic overarching chapter 2 through chapter 6 in the book of Jericho. Or as someone would share with me this week, they remembered that part of Joshua where someone steals that forbidden treasure when they're on their way in military campaign and the Israelites in turn are defeated because they disobey God. And that man, Achan, and his family are killed. That's in chapter 7 and 8. Maybe you remember the charge from the beginning of the book, and that's your recollection of the book, Joshua chapter 1, verse 9, be strong and courageous, for the Lord your God is with you. Or maybe you remember the 12 Ebenezer stones, which were set up as a memorial after the Israelites crossed the Jordan River in Joshua chapter 4. One of the most known passages in the Bible, maybe you have this verse up somewhere in your own house on a plaque or a painting, is Joshua chapter 24, verse 15, one of the very last thoughts in the book of Joshua, where Joshua says, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Anyone have that in their home? There are a lot of verses fit for home decor in the book of Joshua. But what's Joshua about? I mean, what is this book really about? It goes all the way back to, to Genesis. Just give some background just in case we need to hear it. God chose Abraham out of all the peoples on the earth. And he made Abraham and his descendants Israel his people. Back in Genesis beginning chapter 12. And God took Abraham and said, I'm going to connect myself to Abraham. And he, God, made promises to Abraham and his descendants. One of the chief driving promises that God gave to Abraham is that he would give Abraham and his descendants the land of Canaan. And now in this book, in Joshua, the people of God are crossing the Jordan into the land of Canaan. And when they get there, they destroy nearly everyone there. 
Joshua chapter 12 verse 24 notes that in all Israel destroyed and displaced through the book of Joshua a total of 31 kings and their kingdoms out of Canaan so that they could live there. So what's happening? They defeat Jericho, they they cross the Jordan River, they take the land and then in in this book we, we have these long chapters of land records I mean, if you've made your Bible reading plan through Leviticus, you might get to Joshua and find this to be one of your next great challenges. We have this long list of lands that are taken and kings that are conquered, named after name after name, and lands and pastures allotted to this tribe and that tribe. It's like reading through someone's property mortgage. Not really exciting stuff. I mean, what does this all mean? Look at chapter 21. This is another of those chapters, really the final chapter, which can seem very boring and pointless to us. It just looks like a record to go in the file drawer. You might see something like this as a title for your chapter 21. Cities and pasture lands. Cities and pasture lands given to the tribes of Israel. Everybody excited? I mean, who who knows about this? I mean, was that your devotional this week? Oh, man, let me tell you. I I was going in the list of lands allotted to Levi, and I decided I'm going to get a coffee mug that says, and God gave 13 cities as pasture lands to Zebulun and Jachneam. It's so encouraging. No, we tend to have no idea why this list is here. Look at chapter 21. See, at the end of verse 19, we see this repetition of list that's been going on for several chapters, actually. The cities of the descendants of Aaron, the priests, were all 13 cities with their pasture lands. Look at in verse 26, just to see the repetition. Then there, the cities of the clans of the rest of the Kohathites with 10 in all their pasture lands. Look down in verse 33, it just keeps going. The cities of the several clans of the Gershonites were in all 13 cities with their pasture lands. And so it continues. This has been going on from chapter 15 through 21. Records of lands and kingdoms and rights to the land handed out to the 12 tribes of Israel, one tribe and sometimes family at a time. But then it all comes together. Look at chapter 21 and read again verses 42. Through 45. Watch how it transitions immediately from records of pasture lands to the meaning of what God's been doing this whole time. Chapter 21, verse 42, these cities each had its pasture lands around it, so it was with all these cities. Thus the Lord gave to Israel all the land that he swore to give to their fathers. And they took possession of it. And they settled there. And the Lord gave them rest on every side just as he had sworn to their fathers. Not one of all their enemies withstood them. For the Lord had given all their enemies into their hands. Not one word of all the good promises the Lord had made to the house of Israel had failed. All came to pass. That's the whole point of the book of Joshua. Not one. 
Not one of God's good promises failed. All came to pass. Every record in the book of Joshua is a record proclaiming. I didn't lose one tribe. I did not forget Levi. I didn't forget a clan or a family. All my promises came true. Look how this passage is operating in the history of the Bible. Which promises exactly are being fulfilled in Joshua's day? Look again in verse 43. Thus the Lord gave to Israel all the land he swore to give to their fathers. Well, their fathers, who is that? that that's Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. You don't have to look there. You may write these verses down to go read and reflect later. Genesis chapter 13 the Lord said to Abraham, after Lot had separated from him, lift up your eyes, look from the place where you are, northward and southward and eastward and westward, for all the land that you see I will give to you and to your offspring forever. And then in Genesis chapter 26, verse 3, God gives Abraham's son Isaac the same promise. And then in Genesis chapter 28, verse 4 and verse 13, God gives and confirms the same promise that he gave to Abraham and Isaac. He promises it to Jacob. So what is happening when God overtakes the enemies in the land of Canaan and gives it to the people of Israel? God's keeping his promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And all that was going on in a 700 years or so span between Abraham and Jacob, God was always keeping his promise to the point where he finishes his promise. It didn't feel like it for a while there in Egypt, but God was always keeping his promise. Not one word failed. The book of Joshua is proclaiming to all the earth that God keeps his promises to save his people and bring them home. So everything from Abraham to Joshua is part of that testimony. God keeps his promises while that was going on. When Abraham was wandering around in the desert, God was keeping his promise. When Isaac was on the altar... About to die, God was keeping his promise. When Joseph was handed over, God was keeping his promise. When there was famine that drove Israel into Egypt, God was keeping his promises. When Israel was in slavery for 400 years, God was keeping his promises. When Moses led the people out of Egypt, when the people complained, when the people had no food, when God gave them bread and water, when they met enemy after enemy, God disciplined them. When enemies were defeated, when enemies defeated them, God's promise was never faltering, never failed. No matter what it looked like, God was keeping his promise. Turn with me in your Bibles to Psalm chapter 105, which we read at the beginning of our service this morning. Psalm 105. No matter what it looked like, God was keeping his promise, and this brings us to worship God. Psalm chapter 105, we'll look at it. We don't have time to read it all this morning and get to everything we need to. But we're going to see a few things to see that Psalm 105 is a worship song that flows from God's promise to Abraham to fulfillment in Joshua. It tells the whole story. It says, let's worship God because he keeps his promises. This is a promise song. 
Look in chapter 105 of Psalms, verse 1 through 3. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, call upon his name, make known his deeds among the peoples, sing to him, sing praises to him, tell of his wondrous works, glory in his holy name. Let the hearts of those who seek the Lord rejoice. Now watch, now why worship God? Because he kept his promise from Abraham in Genesis 12 all the way to Joshua 21. Look at chapter 105, verse 7 through 11. Psalm 105, verse 7 through 11. He is the Lord our God. This is the content of our worship. His judgments are in all the earth. He he remembers his covenant forever. The word that he commanded for a thousand generations. The covenant that he made with Abraham. His sworn promise to Isaac, which he confirmed to Jacob as a statute to Israel as an everlasting covenant, saying... To you I will give the land of Canaan as your portion for an inheritance. Then you can see the the psalm flows from Abraham to Joseph to Moses right through the Old Testament history to Joshua. Look down at verses 42 to 45. Same Psalm 105 verses 42 to 45. Look at how it ends. Verse 42. Why are we worshiping God? For he remembered his holy promise and Abraham his servant. So he brought the people out with joy, his chosen ones, and with singing. And he gave them, why are we worshiping? He gave them the lands of the nations, Canaan, the promised land. And they took possession of the fruit of the people's toil that they might keep his statutes and observe his laws. Praise the Lord. Is your heart toward God low, dry, look into the Bible and see God keeping his promises. If your spirits are low, if your faith is low, if you have become very aware of your sinfulness and unfaithfulness, where do you look? Where do you go? Ponder and meditate Psalm 105 verse 42 and what it means throughout the Bible. He remembered his holy promise. God is worthy of worship because no matter if it takes one day or a thousand generations, his promises come true. Faith that God keeps promises turns to worship that God keeps promises. It turns into praise. So if our praise is lacking, go back to the root of praise, that God keeps his promises, keeps his covenant. To find out that there is in the universe a creator and a, and a God that we can trust is a reason to rejoice. I don't know that we think about it with the weight it deserves. We take it so much for granted. We can trust God. We don't have to wonder if God's going to be there tomorrow, if he's going to do what he said, if he's going to change the plan, if he's somehow going to string us along and then pull the rug right under our feet at the very end and change everything. Or does he keep his promises and we can trust him? 
There's several different cities in the United States right now that are facing water crisis. I was listening to a podcast this last week about a city in the Northwest. Flooding had caused them to lose all kinds of pipes and different things. And the podcaster just said something so simple yet so profound. People take for granted the fact that we have water. Oh, friends, don't take for granted the promises of God. It is water to our souls to know and trust God. If you see God's keeping his promises, your heart can be shifted from brittle and hard to filled with worship and amazement and tenderness. You'll begin to sound like the psalmist in Psalm chapter 119, which mentions the promises of God, the covenants of God, in nearly every section. Your, your heart will, will see it and, and then bubble up with things like Psalm 11950. This is my comfort in my affliction that your promise gives me life. Or verse 58, be gracious to me, God, according to your promise. Your heart will bubble up with the, the longing of Psalm 119.82. My eyes long for your promise. I want to see your promises come true. You, you will rejoice and, and rest that all through the generation, Psalm 119.140, I rest in this. Your promise is well tried. It's been tested and they keep coming true. 148, my eyes are awake before the watches of the night that I may meditate on your promise. My friends, maybe this week you need nothing more in your heart and soul than to spend some hours meditating on God keeping his promises. When you are low, do not consider that you need to pursue a feeling that you lost. You need to pursue an affection that you lost. You need to pursue some faith that you lost in yourself. You need to get back your own strength that you lost. Consider what the Psalms are telling us. When, when the gas light is low in your car, what do you need to put into it? You need to put in gasoline. When your affections and faith in God are low, what do you need to put into it? God's promises. The hope and strength and joy that bubbles out into worship of God in Psalm 105, the joy of our hearts is that God's promises are sure. And that's worship in the heart, which leads to faith and obedience in the life. Get in your Bible this week and get alone with God and discuss this in your small groups. Make this a point of evangelism when you talk to others. But not one, not one of God's word has ever failed. And let your heart worship and exclaim to the nations and your neighbors that God keeps his promises. As you go through the Bible, when God's people are tempted to go elsewhere for worship, when they're tempted to go elsewhere for strength, when they're tempted to go elsewhere for security, when they're facing their enemies, God reminds him, God reminds his people that he is the only promise-keeping God and you don't have anywhere to go. Look with me in Isaiah chapter 46, verse 8 through 11. Isaiah chapter 46, verse 8 through 11. And this is just an example for us of how the prophets look backward to Joshua's time and God keeping all of his promises and God reminding them to look back there to see what kind of God he is. This is instructional for us when we forget God. What do we remember about God? 
Isaiah 46, verse 8 through 11, the people of God, to say the least and to make it short, they are not walking with God. They've not been walking with God. They have for generations given themselves to Baal and idol worship. But in Isaiah 46, 8 through 11, God calls them through the prophet, remember this and stand firm. Recall it to mind, you transgressors. Remember the former things of old. Look backwards. For I am a God, for I am God, and there is no other. I am God, and there is none like me who declare the end from the beginning. And from ancient times, things that haven't even happened, saying, My counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish all my purpose. Calling a bird of prey from the east, that's a metaphor for nations. That the man of my counsel, from a, or the man of my counsel from a far country, I have spoken, and I will bring it to pass. I have purposed, I will do it. Do not forget. Remember, I keep my promises. I keep my word. I have spoken. I will do it. This is a refrain all through the prophets. And the prophets were looking backwards at the promises of God, saying to the people who had deserted God, there's no other God that does that but God. So make that part of your motivation to come back to the God of the Bible, back to believing that what God speaks comes true every time. And what are God's promises for us? What are God's promises to you? Land? All God's promises are centered on the person of Jesus Christ. Turn in the New Testament to Acts chapter 13. Acts chapter 13. Put you in your Bibles around page 921 if that helps. Let's make sure no one's lost. The kind of big number on your pages are chapters, a little number are verses. Chapter 13. Look at verse 26. Paul, a Jew is preaching in a synagogue. He's preaching to the descendants of Abraham by Joshua's children, Joshua's descendants. And listen to what Paul says about Jesus in relation to all those promises God made to Abraham. Chapter 13, verse 26. Brothers, sons of the family of Abraham... And those among you who fear God, referring to those who may be here fearing God, but might not actually be of the bloodline of Jews, to us has been sent, to the apostles has been sent the message of this salvation. Listen to the history lesson that he gives them real quick. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not recognize him nor understand the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath like they've been doing today, I mean, this, this could border on sarcasm with Paul. The utterance of the prophets they didn't understand which I read every Sabbath like you guys are doing today fulfilled them by condemning him. And though they found in him no guilt worthy of death, they, the Jews at the time of Jesus' crucifixion, they asked Pilate to have him executed. And they had carried out all, when they had carried out all that was written of him, all the prophets had written about him before came true. They took him down from the tree and they laid him in a tomb. But God raised him up from the dead. Jesus rose from the dead and for many days he appeared to those 
who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses to the people. The people who should have seen Jesus coming and the prophets missed him because they didn't understand. They had him crucified and people saw Jesus raised from the dead. And so we are here to tell you, witness, this is historical fact. Listen to Paul's interpretation. Listen to his meaning for Jesus being crucified according to the prophets and rising from the dead. Verse 32, and we bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus. And he goes on to explain even further from Scripture. What is he saying? We bring you the gospel, the good news, that what was promised to the fathers has just happened. I mean, the ultimate culmination of the promises to Abraham, Isaac, to Jacob is Jesus. Jesus is the promise fulfillment. The promise to Abraham was never merely about the descendants of Abraham by flesh, the priest and the temple and the land of Israel on the ground. It was always about the spiritual children of Abraham who were born of faith and spirit. About Christ, the high priest who shed his blood on the cross for sin, not just for temples on earth, but for in heaven itself before God. And this is just walking through the book of Hebrews. It was always about Jesus who rose from the dead to defeat death itself. Not just enemies in the land, but the enemies of sin and death. And about all those who in Christ Jesus are going home to be with God in the land with him forever. This was always the great big news. Jesus and this is how Zechariah talked as another example in chapter Luke chapter 1. Zechariah, the father of John the Baptist, when he hears the vision and sees the angel in the temple at his service, he comes out and it says he is filled with the Holy Spirit. And he says, Luke chapter 1 verse 71, that we should, he is praising God that we, Israel, should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us. At the birth of Jesus being filled with the Spirit, Zechariah prophesied what God promised to Abraham. It's here. It's here in Jesus Christ. God has really never made a promise or kept a promise that wasn't toward and through the person of Jesus Christ. Paul says it like this, 2 Corinthians 1.20, all God's promises find their yes in him, in Jesus. Today, if you're wondering where to start on God's promises and what to believe God promised that he would do, start with Jesus Believe that Jesus is God's promised son sent to save mankind from our sin and from death. And in finding Christ, you'll have the, common, the culmination of everything God has ever promised. Friends, believers, unbelievers here today, young, old, hear this. God keeps his promises and nothing gets in his way. Nothing thwarts God's promises to save his people and bring them to himself not even death 
not even their own sin and hostility against him because he sent Jesus to die for his people's sin, a man among them, to forgive their sin and to raise from the dead that all who trust in Jesus Christ would also raise from the dead and live with God forever. That's exactly what happened when Jesus came to earth. Paul is telling us this was the promise to Abraham all along. This is the promise of the prophets. This was the promise that Jesus said about himself when he was on the earth. I'm going to die and I will raise. And then he died and then he rose. You know what that means? We can trust God with our lives here on earth and eternity. We can trust God with our lives here on earth and our lives after death in eternity because Jesus, a man, died for our sins and rose from the grave. We can trust him because he keeps his promises. And a few weeks ago, we were in Asheville, North Carolina, visiting the Sosslers, a former associate pastor of ours. You may know him. And while we were there, there was, a, there was a coroner coming into their house just I think it was kind of west of downtown Asheville. And there was a different homeless person every day and every time we passed that corner. Uh, one of the girls had a sign that said, today's my birthday, which I thought was a creative way to get attention. One sign we passed said, 16 years ago, my dad told me to wait right here. <laughs> I, I, I'm pretty sure... It was a ploy at attention? I don't know. Maybe not. While the sign was probably a creative joke, I've been thinking it's descriptive of how a lot of people have come to feel about God. Just empty promise. After empty promise. So many people have been disappointed with God. He did not give them their earthly desire. All the while, he's keeping every promise that he's ever made. And the Bible is filled with promise after promise after promise coming true, spanning not only 16 years, but 700 years, 2,000 years in his promise between Abraham and Christ. And do you think he won't come back for us like he said? We can trust God because he keeps his promises. He has not only revealed himself to us in doctrine and in sentence and in truth, but in time and in interaction with nations to show that what he says he will do, he will do. So that when he says all who believe in Jesus Christ will have eternal life, we can trust that God keeps his promises. Point two Trusting God means we keep God's commandments. Trusting God does not mean believing that things are going to come true. It's not it. It's not just believing a weather prediction about the future, that it's true in, it, in its essence. I haven't asked if I could share this, so I might pay for this later, but... Colette and I have kind of an ongoing, uh, subtle debate about weather predictions in our home. Uh, 
I tend to think that chances for rain are, are a bit overblown. A forecaster may say something like, next week there's a 75% chance of rain in nine days. I will tend to roll my eyes and say, sounds like there's a 75% chance that the weatherman was just bored. Colette, however, is more likely to heed that promise. Colette will rearrange her plans. Colette will make what used to be plans in her mind's possibilities because of the promise of rain. So she'll say things like, we were going to go to the park this week and we will if it doesn't rain. Well, she's a better testament of what it means to actually believe someone's promise. That's what it's like to trust God. Trusting God's promises means you plan accordingly and you obey. Joshua gives us insight into how we understand the promises of God in relation to the commands of God. Go back in your Bibles to Joshua chapter 1, the very beginning of that book, to one of those passages in Joshua, which is so familiar to us. This is one of those coffee mug verses, and and I think rightfully so. Look in Joshua chapter 1, verse 6, and then just for time, read verse 9. Be strong and courageous, right? They're, they're on this side of the Jordan. They, they haven't fought Jericho yet. They, they haven't fought any of those enemies yet. They haven't crossed over the river yet. They haven't gone into the land of Canaan where all their enemies are. So, so the command from Joshua to the people from God is verse 6, 1 verse 6, Be strong and courageous, for you shall cause this people to inherit the land that I swore to their fathers to give them. The very specific command. Be courageous. I'm going to cause the people to inherit the land that I swore to give to them, to their fathers. Now go down to verse 9. There's a section there talking about keeping the law along the way. In verse 9, Have I not commanded you, be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened and do not be dismayed. For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. God, you you swore that that you were going to give us this land, right? Yes. And you want us to go in and fight to, to get it. Yes. Well, are you going to give it to us? Or did you want us to go in and get it? Yes. One important clarification real quick here. This passage is not even getting close to what we would call the prosperity gospel. A way that this passage can often easily be misconstrued. You know what? You do whatever you want. You go wherever you feel, whatever you think is good. You be you. You go play sports. You go to work. You go play. You just be strong and courageous, and God will be with you for your success wherever you go. Oh, be very careful. God has been very clear in his command to Joshua this moment that he is going to be with them in taking the specific land that he swore to their fathers. So that you could say very clearly, God said he would give this and then he gave it. And how many have turned from God thinking God was owed, God owed them something which he never actually promised. 
And let me just say a side note here. You can study this through Joshua and through the prophets that it is absolutely satanic to oppose God's promises by adding or taking away from his promises. This is what Satan does in the garden. This is what false prophets do in the book of Jeremiah. God says we're going to Babylon for 70 years and false prophets line up and say, listen, it's not that bad. God's going to bring us home. That's not, he didn't, he didn't really mean that. That's satanic. Do not add to God's promises. Your feelings and your wants and your desires on the earth. Be very careful about that. But also, brothers and sisters, don't go below God's promises. We're not hopeless. God's promises are more wonderful than we could ever imagine. But see here the relationship. You, Israel, are going into the land. You keep my commands toward the promise. And isn't it wonderful and glorious how the commands to us, to his people, and to the himself about promises, how they work together. The command is go in the land and fight and keep my commands, keep the law, and I will give you the land. And then after they take the land, what does it say in Joshua 21? God's promises did not fail. It's God's promises that came true. Well, did you hear the news? Israel took all of Canaan. (laughs) Well, it makes sense. God promised to give it to them. God will keep his promises. What can you do? Trust him and keep his commands. You cannot keep God's promises for him. You cannot, in your own, make God's promises come true. You cannot add to God's promises. You cannot take away from them. You cannot get better promises from God than what he's already promised us in Jesus Christ. And no one, no political vote, no, no spouse, no parent, no government or war, no climate change, no sickness, no inflation, no exploration of the universe, not even death itself, nothing can stop God's promises from coming true. God has made promises. God has kept his promises finally and ultimately in sending Christ And God will keep his promises to all who trust in Christ. So what do I do? So so what do we do? We're we're trusting in Christ as the ultimate culmination of God's promise to, to save his eternal people by raising Jesus from the dead, that he will come and get us. What do we do? We trust God because of his promises and we obey his commands. That's what we do. Christ has promised to build his church in Matthew 16. You be obedient to tell people about Jesus, Matthew 28. God has promised to judge every person when they die. 1 Corinthians 5, most of the New Testament. You be obedient in forgiving and loving others as Christ has forgiven you, Colossians 3. God has promised to bring those who are in Christ to heaven and that he will give us the inheritance of himself and heaven. So you be fearless and generous when it comes to giving and supporting the ministry of the gospel with your tithe. God has promised all who trust in Christ will be brought into the promised land of heaven. You simply obey and endure despite what persecution comes now. 
God has promised to give his kingdom to his children in Christ, so obey him by praying for his kingdom to come. And like in Luke 11, God has said to his church, do you lack wisdom? He will give it if you obey him and ask in faith, James 1. God has promised to avenge his enemies. So, so, so far as it goes to you, you keep trusting God and the command of God by never avenging yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, Romans 12. You just keep giving water and food to your enemies. God will come with his vengeance. God has promised to make for himself a spiritual people after Abraham. You keep doing family devotions and sharing the gospel with your children, even if they think it's stupid. You're going to receive your inheritance from God and Christ. So all the work for, that you do that might have some retirement attached to it, which is important, all the work that you do at your job, all the work that you do at home every day with your family, work as though you were serving God himself. Friends, this is how we read our Bibles. This is how we live by faith and trust God. God, what have you promised me in Jesus Christ? I believe it. And what do you want me to do? I will do it. You might say to close here, oh, you know what? This sounds to me like work salvation. I, I go into the land and, and I obey and God rewards me with the land. <laughs> no, God chooses his people by his own free, gracious, sovereign will and then God saves his people as he promised them, as he begun to do in, in Abraham. This is how God saves anyone. The pressure is off. Being saved from our sins and death and God keeping his promises to save us is on God. And keeping God's commands is about trusting that he will do that for us. We don't trust our obedience for our salvation. We don't trust our obedience for our salvation. It has to be that way because we're not good promise keepers. Remember that's the exact way that Joshua ends the book. Joshua chapter 24. Joshua is about to die. We're about to go into the time of Judges. And Joshua utters that ultimate dilemma and crisis to the people who are now in the land. Choose this day whom you will serve. God or Baal. And the people say, oh, we'll, we'll serve God. <laughs> that, that's our God. We'll serve our God. And Joshua finishes the whole book of Joshua saying, no, you can't. And the people respond, no, 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 really, we, we will, we will. And Joshua's last words in the book of Joshua 24 is to make a covenant with the people and say, basically, you said you will keep God's commands. Let's write that down and see how it goes. And then by the time we get to the end of the book of Judges, we have this sentence, and everyone was doing what was right in their own eyes. God is the only one who keeps all his promises. We're not saved in the end 
by the perfection of our command keeping. We are saved by the perfection of God's keeping His promise in His perfect Son, Jesus Christ. Trust and obey. And then one day, one day, when those who are trusting Christ reach the other side of that shore and we are in heaven with God, we will not be celebrating our obedience to God. We will not ever once consider that we got ourselves into heaven. In heaven, God's people will not boast of God choosing us or that we defeated our own enemies. We won't be bragging that we brought others into the kingdom, that we added to the kingdom. Instead, we will sing and say and love, reminding one another not one word. Not one word of all the good promises that the Lord God had made to those in Christ had failed. All came to pass. Trust God that he will keep his commandments. Trust God that he will keep his promises, excuse me. You keep his commandments. Let's pray. Father, we give you praise and thanks that you are a God who has made and kept promises in time. Thank you for your faithfulness. We worship you for your character. We fear you because you are faultless and your words coming true. Help us, Father, continue to have clarity as we open your word to see that which you have promised and then trust you by following in your commands. We love you. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.